Welcome again to another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast. As always, I'm here with the glorious Mike Crimmins. Oh, Zachary, good to see you. It's been a month. Been a month. How's that month treated you? Pretty good. Yeah. Delightfully not as hellish as I thought it was going to be. We are on the precipice of descending into a fiery you, hell. Every day you wake up going, this is going to be the day. Triple digits here yeah, in actually, Tucson, Arizona. It is. Uh, 106, sure. which is a prelude to June. Maybe we should start back with what was quite a comfortable May. May was, was pretty mild, all yeah. things considered. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other places it would be hot. But in Southwest United States, it uh, was pretty mild. Yeah, I had a 95-degree day where I wore a sweatshirt. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. <laughs> so we have our, um, you know, our house is open and our, our swamp cooler is clicking on and off and surprisingly has been not kicking on. And I was wandering around and, and had to throw a sweatshirt on. It's, it's, something's not right. In the last 30 days, so, so if you look across Arizona, New Mexico, in fact, if you look across the entire West, uh, they've been below average temperatures with the exception of California for the most part, which has been slightly above average. That was quite refreshing. Yeah. And I'm wondering, Mike, if you have any thoughts on what produced those those cooler conditions. Did we have a string of Pacific Northwest storms traversing our area, or what, what, what was the cause of those below average temperatures? Yeah, what happened? Um, we actually had weather. We actually had a roller coaster of <laughs> a couple of weather events. We were very warm at the early part of the month, and actually here in Tucson, crested 100 degrees. And then, as you and I were probably both thinking, and was that that was it. That was the beginning of the end. And then you just sort of stack up every day. After that is yet another 100, another 100, we just keep marching up. Well, we had a really strong, cold, low-pressure system drop out of the Pacific Northwest, a couple of them actually throughout the month, that pushed temperatures way, way down, way below normal, both in daytime highs and overnight lows for sort of early May. And then we would quickly warm back up afterwards as the ridge would build back in. Then we get it knocked back down by as another low-pressure system would come through. And so we've been on this roller coaster of uh, weather kind of traversing across the West, which is actually, if you look, it looks different than it was in March and was in April, where we would really get locked into these sort of shallow ridge day upon day, maybe a, a windy system to the north. But these were actually real low-pressure systems kind of moving through the Southwest, even producing precip in some locations in May. So that's great. I'm going to quote you. We had weather. Do we not <laughs> always have weather? Not in my mind. You have to you have to reach a threshold. It's got to be interesting. May eighth, ninth, and tenth actually saw the average the, the the maximum temperatures were lower by 12, 12 degrees Fahrenheit uh, on the eighth, twenty one degrees on the ninth, and fifteen degrees. So it was quite it was quite a deviation from what was ex- expected in May. But you mentioned that there were a number of these sort of systems that that pushed through and that was different than in March and and April. And I'm wondering, like, I I typically associate April as this transition period where you get, you can get a lot of movement through with with these storms, but that seemed not to be the case. It seemed to be a little bit delayed this year. And we we had more of that in in May. The last couple of Mays, and especially if we think back to last year, we've actually had this a bit of a reverse spring where March and April felt more like April and May and vice versa. And then we got into more of a, it, it felt like the weather pattern was more transitional in May than it was even in March and April, right? right. Because we would get into these sort of stuck blocking, I don't know if it's necessarily blocking, but um, persistent ridge mm-hmm. 
pattern that led to that string of warm temperatures in March. And this month has been shallow ridge moving in, you know, sort of deep trough coming through and then uh, moving through. And if you look at the, the weather forecast for the next week or so, the pattern continues, which is interesting to see in late May. It's a little bit, at least my experience living here in the Southwest for like 15 years, start to really start to see that subtropical ridge starting to push in, get a little bit more into the, we're sort of pushing into that doldrums of uh, June. Now, do you think that there's any any foreshadowing going on for the monsoon? Do you, it's not something that we can think about the the ridge maybe building and for the, mon- the monsoon ridge building a little bit later. It's not at all related. No, I, I don't think so. I think that, you know, there's these sort of, what do you call them, aphorisms or there's sort of uh, ideas of if you're getting this late in the season, you're starting seeing this this pattern that it spells doom for the monsoon season that just doesn't really bear out in the data. And especially just experientially, if you think even back to like the last five, six, seven monsoon systems, we've had a couple of years where this has happened late into the month. Even just think back to last May. Last May was actually, we were pretty close to average, which felt cool because the May temps have been so warm over the last um, years with the warming signal, especially through the spring. It was fairly pleasant. We had sort of a a weak uh, low pressure system persist across the southwest. It led to the Miracle May snowpack accumulation, again, last spring. What happened on Father's Day weekend here in the southwest, we had record high temperatures. So it was literally within two weeks, we had shifted over into this extremely strong ridge overhead and we were in full tilt moving towards the monsoon, even starting to see some activity spill in at the end of June. So that's the thing that I've learned over the years is that from week to week, it's not leaning in one direction or the other. Years ago, I would have thought this is not a good sign, but I just don't think it, it spells uh, anything. It's too early. We're going to have to fact check some of those, those memories of yours. Totally. That was it's, actually quite detailed. It was very detailed. Um, probably 20% data driven, 80% memory driven. And, uh, that's a, that's a pretty bad ratio. (laughs) Well, March actually turned up the, for the Tucson international airport station, but this is probably somewhat representative of a a broader area, but the March temperature was the warmest on record. Yeah. I mean, it just, it sticks out in the spring. It was just absolutely remarkable warm temperatures. We got caught up in the thing too, and we've seen this two years in a row now where that early spring, does that spell the rest, that early spring and the early spring warmth? Does that give you any sort of indication how it's going to play out for the rest of the season? No, it actually hasn't. These little weird reverse springs we've had, I really don't understand or know what's what's causing them. You know, next year we could switch right back over and have some a fairly mild early spring and then a very, very warm late spring like we've seen in earlier years, uh, just even a couple of years ago. We don't often report on global average temperatures, but the the pattern in March was also, broadly speaking, uh, the pattern across across the globe. If you look at, I believe March came in as, as one of the warmest, if not the warmest globally on, on record. If you look at the January through April period, it was the second uh, warmest uh, on record. So that dates back to 1880. So the warming that we've been experiencing here in the Southwest is also pretty broadly based. You know, it's interesting because you can get caught up into our local weather pattern, but putting in that, that global context is really important. There's been a lot of interest and activity around weather attribution, taking these record warm months and trying to put them in a, a climate change context. In February, we actually had fairly mild weather while the Eastern U.S. was extremely warm. We've talked about this in earlier forecast. But there's a, a group called uh, World Weather Attribution, which has a really interesting website where they, they try to do real-time forensics on these events and found a really strong climate change signal in that eastern warmth, really seeing that the the frequency of those types of events has largely shifted in uh, more recent years. And you expect to see those kinds of events more frequently 
just given the trajectory we're on with climate change? So in terms of precipitation, then, there's probably very little to, to look forward to and, un, until the monsoon arrives. As a climatologist, yeah, I'd fall back to what does it normally tell us? But we've seen some weird stuff the last couple of years. Again, these transition-type storms as they're sort of sweeping out of the, the North Pacific down here, if they can start scooping up some early monsoon season moisture that's starting to move north south of us, even in May, you can actually have some... Uh, weather activity. And then the specific tropical storm system, we did have our first named storm a week or two ago. Uh, Adrian kind of quickly came and went. We expect to sort of see that activity move forward. Climatologically, no, no, we're bottoming out on the driest part of the year here. But even this last month, we saw some locations pick up a spit here and there. More northern to the more northern, southwest. Yeah, yeah, and even sort of <clears throat> further out to western Arizona. And again, those are locations that have a ton of zeros in their historical record. You get a, a couple of handfuls of days of that. They look like enormous anomalies. You know, nothing to scoff at. Getting a little bit of, of precip in May is certainly helpful. In terms of other characteristics here in the Southwest, one of the notable differences that I've seen is in the reservoir levels, which obviously reflects the wet conditions that a lot of the area experience, particularly in the upper basin. I believe. Lakes Mean Pal gained close to 2 million acre feet in the last year. So that's pretty substantial. Most of the reservoirs in Arizona and New Mexico are uh, higher than they were one year ago. So I think that there's a, I dare not say optimistic because it's clearly not an optimistic picture for, for a lot of the re- reservoirs, but it's better than it was last year. Yeah, it's it's weird. We've had these, these sort of nick of time events. You're kind of cruising downward and then you get these snowpacks that really start to pull you out of a uh, not you completely get close to the precipice. Yes, exactly. You get close to the edge and somebody just pulls you back a foot. It doesn't pull you all the way back from the edge, but just enough to buy you a little bit of time. It, you know, it, it's not enough to, it's not a, a complete reversal of direction, but it certainly kicks the can down a road. So at the end of April, Lake Powell was 45% full and Lake Mead was 37% full. And of course, those two reservoirs are managed jointly. So you have to think about them, uh, th- their total water is, as combined. But again, that was 2 million acre feet more than it was a year ago. And some of the other reservoirs in, in Arizona, San Carlos is, is pretty low at 9%. Verde River is 44%. Salt River is 58%. New Mexico, some of the smaller reservoirs are are near full, but some of the some of the larger reservoirs like Elephant Butte, which is for the last fifteen years or so, is you know sort of teetering on near near empty. Um, but you know, hey, fifteen percent in Elephant Butte is probably uh, pretty good. I do not know what that means for the irrigators there, but it's probably not as bad as it has been. So. So the reservoir picture is looking good. The um, not looking good, but not looking bad either. It's all relative at this point, right? <laughs> it looks better than it has. <laughs> I'm seeing things pretty optimistically, just because of uh, the, the the yeah. It's like the being, dire situation. Yeah, it's like being 95 instead of 98 in May. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Marginal gains. Marginal gains. There you go. Um, stream flow forecast. Colorado River. Last month, median estimate was around 130% of average. That has declined to about 116% of average. So less bullish, if you will, but still above average. So, so things look not as good, but 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 again, not not bad. We were talking about earlier, and Ben was showing us some pictures, but there are there's water just raging out of these mountain systems now, right? Um, ben was showing us pictures of the Rio Grande up by Albuquerque, which has pushed over its banks, right, in some locations and has some water and floodplains. And you're pointing out that 
in California, so just kind of really taking broad brush across the Southwest, there is uh, a flooding potential in Reno uh, this weekend near certainty of the water water coming down in um, the Walker River. It's important to say we have seen some really dramatic shifts in snowpack from April to May because of the warm temperatures, right? It's really moved the decline and snowpack really quickly and, and rapidly, and it's pushing a lot of that water out in the rivers. Yeah, we often see a pretty precipitous decline in the in the snowpack conditions in, in the mountains, more so, I, I believe, at sort of mid to mid-ish elevations, yeah, 8,000, yeah. 9,000 feet, and the ones right. that are up higher sort of melt out a little a little bit slower. But yeah, we've seen across across the West, up in the upper basin as well, much of the snow snowpack is actually gone. Yeah, yeah. And that temperature pattern over the last 30 days too has actually been a roller coaster. And so intervening between our kind of cool offs with the low pressure systems down across the Southwest have been some really warm five-day stretches, which I think have really taken their toll on the upper basin. And one of those events was really deep low latitude. So it was a really strong cold low pressure system, but it was actually south of Arizona. So you could actually, you know, see that the temps were not quite not quite as cold north of here up over the upper basin. So even as we were kind of cooling off and slowing down, it would have still kept that um, snow melt. So the Walker River, the that flood that's expected is a snow melt driven flood. Yep. Yeah, it's a blue sky event. Blue sky event. Do you All like right. that? I do. Yeah. I like that. Um, so this will probably be the last time we talk about snowpack for a while. I think so. Say think goodbye. So. It's kind of sad. Well, you know, snowpack's been gone in, in Arizona, New Mexico for, <laughs> for, for quite some time. We've had to keep moving higher and higher latitude to try to to try to continue to talk about it. Yes, completely gone in, in Arizona that I know of. I don't I don't see any um, stations reporting. We we hit upon the water picture. Uh, let's let's call it uh, a fairly optimistic view in comparison to, to to previous years. Fire situation. We've seemed to had have had fairly minor fire activity with the exception of the sawmill fire, which we talked about last month, which was in southeastern uh, uh, Arizona. That has accounted for the vast majority of the acres that have been burned in Arizona. So I think uh, as of a few days ago, or, or maybe even yesterday, something on the vicinity of 54,000 acres had, bur- had burned, and that fire alone burned 45,000 acres. Through May 21st, uh, we've had 593 reported fires. That's both lightning caused and human caused. And the majority of them have been human caused so far this season. And uh, 58,657 acres burned in Arizona. And then in New Mexico, it's been 251, both human and lightning caused fires at about 28,000 acres year to date. And like you said, the majority of it in Arizona was that large grassland fire that burned across southern Arizona. And that was human cost, I believe. That was human cost as well. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that are that are burning now, many of those are actually lightning cost. We have the Pinal County, which is probably burning somewhere in Pinal Can- County. It is. It's on <laughs> Pinal Peak. And it is, um, it was, that's right. It was lightning caused and is, is now being managed for wildland fire use. Kerr is in the Gila National Forest in, in New Mexico. The Bacas and uh, the Gila National Forest in New Mexico, those are both lightning started as well. Uh, this was actually surprising to me because I thought we're a little bit early for, for lightning caused fires. Well, that was the interesting is with a handful, actually two of those low pressure systems that traced across the Southwest had that sort of real deep low latitude, had wrapped some moisture around them and produced quite a bit of convective activity. Not much in Tucson, but sort of north and east of here, we did see quite a bit of thunderstorm activity with those events. And so, 
you do that in May, it's a really good time of the year to start setting stuff on fire. So it's it's interesting to see that. You see a lot of those higher elevation fires, so burning up through heavier fuels. And sort of discussions I've had with folks at the, at the Forest Service is that those higher elevation locations are actually still pretty wet. And there's not real great concern that's going to take off. It's not really a drought year in those upper elevation locations. It's only the lower elevation grasslands that have really cured out and are ready to go. And we're, see- we're seeing some of the biggest fires and where the most active suppression is, is when those catch on windy days and they got to get it, get out in front of them, which is what we've seen around Tucson here. Yeah. So we're still early in the fire season. Again, we said this last time, but the peak fire season is for here in the, in the Southwest is July, June, yeah, which June is and July. June and July. So yeah, yeah, really is kind of a crunched period as we get into June. You, you'd expect to see the higher elevations dry out a little bit more. They're pretty wet. Though I think that that risk is not And huge. the low temperatures kind of helped as well. Yeah. I mean, it took a little bit of the edge off this last month. And then getting a little bit of precip, the higher elevation areas, has helped as well. The grasslands, I think, are still under risk. So, you know, we got to cut that window till the monsoon starts and you start to really put down that good Well, it rain. doesn't take much time with, uh, you know, temp- triple-digit temperatures to dry out, particularly the fine fuels. It doesn't, right? You can get into a, a period in sort of mid-June where you could start to see some of that higher elevation risk increase. But it, again, it's a fairly short window if, if the monsoon closes on that and can get the humidity in and sh- you know shut down the winds and then put down some rain. That gets me excited because the monsoon, you know, we should, know, we should start doing this podcast countdown. every week. We're going to have to Weekly podcast for the months in? I mean, like hourly. <laughs> yeah. Just keep keep refreshing. <laughs> keep keep hey, refreshing we'll the models. You on, we'll just follow you on Twitter, Mike. Oh, gosh. I've been fairly, Mike fairly, fairly quiet on uh, Twitter lately. <laughs> so what next? What do you think? Should we should we think about the future? Should we think about El, El Nino, La Nina, and, the, and our old friend, the Southern Oscillation? The old friend? <laughs> <laughs> the last time we talked about this, there was uh, people were kind of ambivalent, I, I would say, about the El Nino. I mean, there was a forecasted El. The hint was that an El Nino was going to develop, and that it was probably going to be weak if it did develop, and that the likelihood of an El Nino was higher than obviously both a La Nino or, or an Enzo. And there was virtually zero probabilities for for a La Nina to develop. That yeah. was a month ago. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and even two months before that, the models were fairly bullish on a, a moderate. Uh, El Nino. So something... So we've been trending away from that. We've been trending down. And you could really see in the patterns in the Pacific that the models got super interested in the coastal El Nino. And then there was a slug of warm water uh, in the subsurface that I think distracted a lot of the dynamical models. Coastal El Nino. So this is this is very warm condition, sea surface temperatures next to next Just to Peru. Right along the coast that we're sort of driving local All the precipitation anomalies. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting uh, interesting pattern. It's largely subsided and you've got the sort of La Nina ish pattern across the Pacific Ocean and the Easterlies, the trade winds are stronger than average. These are all not um, necessarily good or helpful for the development of an El Nino. I mean, the models themselves are still sort of hovering on the El Nino side of, of neutral. Yeah. Or, or not, they're not above El Nino, but they're right around that threshold. Right. They're on the warm side for sure. Yeah. They're still sort of leaning warm. Looking at the IRI CPC ENSO forecasts for the upcoming June, July, and August period, there is still a 55% chance for an El Nino to develop. And that continues to increase very slightly in odds. It sort of crests this early winter fall in uh, about 60%. 
and you know it hovers around hovers around 60% for El Nino for for the winter. And again, like I said, the La Nina probabilities are virtually nil. Uh, the neutral conditions are roughly around 30, 30%. So there's still this feeling that an El Nino will develop. But if you look in at some of the models, the, the, the NOAA's model, it's it's sort of more siding with the neutral, if not the slightly slightly cooler than average temperature. So Yeah, it looks a lot like a kind of a persisting sea surface temperature forecast, which is there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement in the ocean either direction to go to cooler or warm at this what, point. What's also interesting is if you look at the, so the CPC and the IRI, they, they issue forecasts twice a month, once at the beginning and once in the, in the middle of the month. So I just read the middle of the month. Now, the one in the beginning, however, has, it's not just an objective forecast. It's it's not just letting the forecast, dynamical forecast run and then, and then calculating the ensemble average and that sort of thing. It's actually incorporating some forecast or no, subjective knowledge, if you will. Right. These forecasts are not as bullish. In fact, they call for uh, slightly uh, higher chances for a neutral event than an El Nino event. That's kind of interesting. I mean, the models themselves aren't picking up on on what the forecasters themselves are, are, are thinking. you have any insight into? I think part of it could be that there just isn't the increased temperatures in the, in the subsurface. I think that's that's largely is, you know, looking for that warm water reservoir. But wouldn't the models pick pick up on that? I thought so. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm confused as to what they are. Why Apprehension? Being, yeah, why they're being so bullish. And then I, the, the forecaster tempering that bullishness makes a lot of sense because of just, you know, all that assimilation of, of the other context, the information. But I think this this is still reflecting the spring predictability barrier and the models have trouble moving some of this, some of these dynamics forward past this thing. And the, and the, the more sort of expert system is able to kind of like, okay, hold on a second here. Let's not let the, the computers run away with, with this forecast. Most of the forecast signal you're going to see in the, the precip and the temperature teleconnections that are based on that are going to have this tinge of El Nino in them as you look forward, which makes then the resultant precip and temperature forecasts a little more. You have to kind of take them with a grain of salt mm. as well, which is, you know, you can look at next winter's precip forecast, just raw model output, and they, they do give you a little bit of an El Nino flavor as far as the, you know, what conditions across Southwest. But really, the uncertainty is pretty high at this point, especially when that is really telling us there's equal chances between a weak El Nino and a neutral. There's not much to go on. It is also worth always pointing out that these are forecasts for an El Nino or a La Nina or neutral event. They are not forecasts for precipitation or temperature impacts that result from it. The first strength either. I mean, those are right. just categorical, right? Right. And so we we know we've got to be a little more nuanced with the flavors of these events too. We're not even sure what the flavors are. Yeah, and the further the further you go away from the tropical Pacific Ocean, the 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 epicenter of these of how we determine an, an INSO event, the further away you go, the less correlated the impacts are with with the, that event. Mm-hmm. The impacts, mm-hmm. the rain, uh, the precipitation, the temperature. So. It's just worth saying that it's oftentimes people conflate an ENSO forecast with an actual impacts forecast. Yeah, I think we've helped conflate that over the years. <laughs> I think I think we're doing our part deconflating. Okay, maybe we're deflating. Um, hopefully, we're deflating. At least I, I, well, feel, actually, I feel rather I deflated that. from the whole process. Actually, yeah, you know, I'm looking at the the raw the dynamical model outputs for um, precip. They go out to these different 
time periods. This is October, November, December. So it's just sort of the early part of the, the winter season. And again, remember, these would be early May. They would have a little bit of that El Nino influence in there. And you do see this southern tier wet signal with the ensembles. And again, that's the early part of the season. It wouldn't even be the core of when you'd start to see the El Nino signal emerge. So the models are being dragged that direction because of the expectation, I think, of that teleconnection pattern, which got us in a lot of trouble in the last couple of years. So, you know, looking out at that time scale, just with the raw model data is not going to be helpful. And if we look at the seasonal forecast from the Climate Prediction Center for that same time period of October, November, December, they actually do, with their May 18th forecast, actually have a wet lean to it. So I think you know, they're hedging maybe a little bit. It's not a, f- a really strong forecast. I think that's got the El Nino lean in it. But I would expect as we get into next month, this gets sorted out, probably ends up being a neutral. We'll start to see these forecasts get scaled back to equal chances because there's just not enough of a signal to work with. Do you want to just talk about the monsoon forecasts that are that are out there? Yeah, let's, let's do that. I'd, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> Me too. I was I was going to just throw that open to the to the the audience here. The official forecast from the Climate Prediction Center is actually equal chances for both um, Arizona and New Mexico, and that's not not surprising. The thing that I'm looking at this map, though, and I, I do a little more reading on this, but there's actually a wet signal in the upper Great Plains. Some of the research indicates if the Great Plains goes wet, that we go dry. So it, I don't know what this signal is suggesting. I don't believe they're not, they're robust relationships though. Yeah, it it has some credence and it bears out in the data a little bit. Is it that but it could be that this forecast is being driven by by something a little bit different. What we should say though is is that the forecast there's a you know real strong forecast for above average temperatures for Arizona, mm-hmm. a little less so for New Mexico. It's largely based on trend. The forecast from the raw model output for July, August, September from the National Multimodel Ensemble is actually a punt. It's near average. It's not suggesting wet or dry. It's not necessarily a punt. It's actually a forecast. And it's actually a forecast for near average conditions on the probabilistic forecast. So these these are wildly useless for the summertime right. season anyway. So I just I pull it I pull it up for just interest to see there. And if you look across the ensemble, there's an even mix of above and below average values going into making the near average prediction. Right. So, so there's there's so there's seven so models that are, out, right. that are included in yeah. the North. It's not American a convergence on all of them being ensemble, yeah, yeah, it's not a convergence on being on average. It's a con- it's averaging out dry and wet models together for the summer. Which is that your was favorite. a really long segment to so say they, that we so have Noah, no idea. Noah, I mean I think we should say this. So Noah yeah. tends to Maybe it's not tens. They always use a CFS version two. That, that's their in-house model. Yeah, and then the CFS. That's two, their operational model. That's though. their operational model. Yep. It's got a wet signal, and again, this is that Great Plains wet, and it's got a little bit of dry in the southwest, which makes me wonder if there's something to this, which I think we got to pay attention to. Also, they have the Sierra Madre Occidentales is kind of dry, which would. Sp- be suggestive of a dry uh, uh-huh. monsoon. We should be superstitious about this. Absolutely. So we shouldn't be talking about this at all, right? So no predictions, Mike. No predictions. I predict uh, average start date, average seasonal total. What's the average start date? Uh, July, July 4th. 4th. Come on. Yeah, July 4th in the afternoon. <laughs> July 4th in the afternoon. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> this The Great Plains wet signal stands out in a couple of models. I have, we have to do a little more digging on that. And it's too early to get freaked out about anything. We have no seasonal forecast signal here. We have 
we're basically neutral in the Pacific, slight La Nina atmospheric signal. But it really doesn't tell us much about about anything. I mean, I I think these are these are interesting tools to think through the dynamics of of the monsoon and what potentially yeah. could yeah. could happen. Not that that it will happen, but just to think about they're basically thought experiments. So okay, so if it's if it's dry in in the Southwest and and wet in parts of Texas and New Mexico, like what what would be causing that? Like the one model, the GFDL model, is sort of suggesting that. You know, anyway, I, we we don't yeah. have to get into that, but I do. But we think can that- talk about that next month. You know, it's a subtropical ridge location. It's access to moisture. The models are kind of notorious, given which one you're looking at for doing either doing. They're all not real great on the monsoon dynamics within the season because they don't get topography right and they don't get a lot of the convection right. They get maybe some of the synoptics sort of right, but then yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag for sure. Well, are there models that that fare better than others for the monsoon? It, it their scale. I mean the. The University of Arizona, the WERF model that's run in house here is excellent, but, but that it, but but that's during the monsoon. It's right? during monsoon. I'm, I'm it's weather scale, the, yeah. and that's really where you get the you get yeah. the actual realism of the dynamics, right. and it's it's you know bounded and fed by the global forecast system and then the uh, North American model. And those are weather models that even have issues with getting the synoptics right. We're talking at and what we're looking at are global right. seasonal forecast models, which are another step removed from getting the right scale of the dynamics right. So it's hard. I mean, it's a really, really tough job. And so all it's doing is a really coarse, large-scale synoptics, I think, and then trying to trying to introduce the preset patterns you expect. Boy, the more I look at this, the more I'm getting depressed. Don't. See? That's the problem. So, okay, so... Do you remember how much the, I lived off of that CFS. for El Nino and was yeah. like, oh, it's going to rain next week, every week, and it didn't? But this, Okay, but hold on. Bear with me here. The CFS version two has dry over the Sierra Madre Occidental. The Canadian model is actually has a wet, wet Southern Arizona and and New Mexico. Actually, all of Arizona, New Mexico. Okay, so one to one in terms of the monsoon. The second Canadian model, the CMC two, has dry Sierra Madre Occidental, sort of punts uh, on the monsoon. The GFDL model is looks like a blazing inferno. It really does. Uh, it's dry everywhere <laughs> except for like Maine. <laughs> yeah, or ten- Tennessee and West Virginia and that that area, including uh, very 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 dry for uh, the monsoon region. The GFDL model is kind of weird in that it's it's wet in Mexico and the the monsoon region and dry in in Arizona. The NCAR model is sort of weekly wet. And then the NASA model is super dry over m- much of Mexico, including the Sierra Madre Occidental and sort of punts on uh, the southern part of Arizona, New Mexico for the monsoon. And then the International Multimodel Ensemble, that IMME model is also uh, dry for the monsoon region. You know, the thing you didn't do is put the skill mask on. Do you want me to redo that whole thing with I'd the like skill mask? I'd like you to redo it, and then, you, and then your, your conversation would be really short. You'd be like, oh, wait, <laughs> there's no skill in any of these right. models anywhere, so why don't we move on? I'm sorry I even brought it up. Now I'm just <laughs> – you're going to end up refreshing this page every day now looking for the changes in there. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. pulled up the skill mask page. I know what this looks like, and <laughs> it is true. I mean, the, there so is— So what's a skill mask? 
a skill mask is it, it masks the areas where the models don't do better than than just flipping a coin or climatology. Right. So historically, they have not performed well. Right. In those so regions. your your best estimate then is just to use climatology. So which is what I just July Fourth in the afternoon. In the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Tucson, you know, your mileage may vary depending on your location. This was a long way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, this gets edited down to like one sentence. Yeah, sorry, the, Ben. <laughs> no, I, I, I do think it's worth sort of pulling. Because I think people are we're yeah. leaning into it now, right? Yeah, we're, I mean, we are pulling the hood back a little bit on. Yeah, on what's we're in less these... than three weeks away from the official start of the monsoon, right? So we have to. We should start thinking about it for sure. All right, so. The monsoon is going to be a banner year. We're going to have <laughs> no. We're not. We're not. We're not going to make any predictions on the monsoon, but it will be something that we pay very close attention to. It's the most exciting time of year for me, at least. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm. I'm really looking forward to it. So, and I, I should say, I think I'd been kind of trotting this out because just a couple of weeks ago, the East Pacific was was actually pretty warm. It was a degree or two above average. It's not anymore. It's actually crashed and is below average much much of the East Pacific, sort of south off of Mexico. I don't know. It's so, cooled off. Yeah. So one of the things that we were we paid quite a bit of attention to last year was just how warm the waters were in the Gulf of, Gulf of California. Uh huh. They are still really warm in the Gulf of California. That's for sure. But the tropical genesis region for the cyclones off of the coast of Mexico could be temporary. It's actually pretty cool. Could be more weather scale variability at this point, but it's quite a bit cooler than it was. Um, which takes a little bit of the wind out of my sails of my yeah, so one, active East Pacific. So when those temperatures season. get above, what is it, 26, 26 degrees? Yeah, 27, 28. 27, 28, mm-hmm. okay. For, for uh, yeah, open for water us, up. That's when they can start generating their own sort of weather. Uh, yeah, if you get everything else is equal. I mean, we, again, we saw a tropical storm form off of southern Mexico last week, but it was like it came up and down on itself within a day or something like that. It was It did not last long, so... Not the hotbed of activity like we've seen in past years. Maybe a bit quieter. That's definitely going to be an implication for this monsoon season. So we had had a lot of assists in the last couple of years with our seasonal totals from an active uh, storm system. If we if we get half of that this year, we will notice it. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. It is going to be a year in which we don't have some strong single somewhere. You know, in the last couple of years, I mean, yeah, it's a shrug this year for sure. For all the all the typical things that we look to really are are pretty. Pretty bland. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Uh, pretty much in the in, in the middle. Yep. On that note. On that note. Should we go drink beer? Oh, that'd be such a good idea. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll keep everybody with bated breath on that one. All right. Signing off. All right. Cheers. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of Clemus, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with Clemus, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, Research Outreach and Assessment Specialist with Clemus. But we're, we're not, trying to we're figure gonna out. have to edit that one. We're out. <laughs> we just discredited ourselves in the first three minutes. You think it just happened? That's true. I That's... do get emails all the time about your El Nino <laughs> prediction last year. <laughs> oh, you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs>